Thank you, Eddie. So those are, you know, one of the things I love about Scripture is, you know, the Bible tells us as, as a pastor, one of the things that the Bible says we need to do is we need to be committed to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is to encourage people to obey it, and teaching, which is explaining it. But what Eddie just did, reading the Bible, those words are the most powerful words that will be uttered today. They're perfect. What would I say? I do my best to honor the Lord, but I'm not inspired. The things I say are not perfect, but what God says is perfect and powerful. And uh, so we're going to be uh, incorporating that in the future, just reading so that you can just hear what God says, and then you can evaluate, and you can evaluate what I say. We don't evaluate what God says. We obey it, we believe it, we trust it, but we do evaluate what teachers say. So um, I love this passage. Um, it is, um, when you think about this, this story that we're going to read about, Cain killing his brother, that is just the most shocking, um, just heartbreaking story in the Bible. And, but it is powerful, and it was written so that you and I would learn from it. I don't know if you ever struggle with what you see in your family. You ever see the consequences of sin, brokenness? You look into your family and sometimes you see terrible things. One of the things you need to know is that you are not alone. Um, Adam and Eve, the first couple that God made, saw the ultimate tragedy happen in their house. And so it is very helpful and it should be encouraging to you. Like I know often parents have a tendency to beat themselves up over what happens with their kids. This happens to be a very encouraging story for me because the perfect exhortation is given to Cain. It comes from God himself. And we know that what God does and what God says is perfect. And Cain doesn't listen. Cain doesn't respond. As parents, we do the best that we can. And actually, there are a lot of things that we can learn from this passage about parenting. Not just about parenting, about discipleship, how we influence other people. Not just that, about our own heart. And so this is a very powerful passage about those things that we should bring to bear. And one of the things we know is that God's perfect, right? But you and I aren't. And we do the best that we can, but never will we ever do anything that's perfect in this world. And we trust God's power in everything that we do. Uh, I would say the key issue here is understanding the human heart and what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and mankind fell and how sin can grip a heart, how sin grips your heart and my heart, how sin grips the heart of people in the world. And to think through, how do we deal with that? How do we address that? How do we understand this world that we're in? And one of the things that I would say in Proverbs, it says this, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's one of the things that we're going to see in this story is that Cain's life reflected what was in his heart. By the way, for all of us, our life will, re will reflect what is in our heart. And if we don't deal with our hearts rightly, we will end up eventually where Cain ended up. Often I think we can be careless with our hearts and the hearts of the people that we shepherd. And so these are things that we need to be very diligent about. There was a quote, and it just says this. Uh, it says, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Man, that's sin. And uh, so often in our culture, in the church, uh, in, in people's lives who have grown up in church, who have learned the truth, they play around with sin. They invite sinful things into their life and into their heart. They allow their affections to be for this world instead of for the Lord. And that's something that we need to take seriously. So we're going to see four things this morning. The first one is that God wants worship from your heart. And I love what I love what Jim have to say. It's like, I just, I love our elders. I love sitting around in elder meetings. And the more that you can talk to them, the more that you can hear from them, the better off you will be. And so I'm super thankful for the things that, that Jim shared. But one of the things that we learn is that God wants worship from our heart. The second thing is that the source of sin 
is your heart. It's not your actions. That's not the biggest thing. The biggest thing is your heart, which, by the way, is reflected in your actions. This is a story that will help us understand that unchecked sin unleashes devastating consequences in our lives. And that's something that we need to know because uh, we always reap what we sow, but what you need to think about is that you reap later than you sow. Often what you do today doesn't affect you today, it affects you tomorrow. Uh, You reap more than what you sow. You can sow little sinful acts today, but you will eventually reap a greater harvest of destruction and sin in your life. And the, the other thing is that we also reap what we sow. And so that's an important thing for us to understand. So let's jump into that, this passage and let's just consider this, that God wants worship from the heart. And so let's read this story. By the way, this is a true story. Uh, there are many people as they approach scripture, uh, they want to mythologize the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And one of the things that you will understand as you read the book of Genesis is that everything in Genesis happened exactly the way that God describes it. It is portrayed as a historical account. And, and of course, there are people who they deny the existence of God, they, they deny the truthfulness of Scripture, and, and they want to approach this passage in a different way. But the Bible is very clear as you read this. It is portrayed as a historical account. It is referred to throughout Scripture as a historical account. And it's important that we think about this and realize this is not just a story. It is a story, but it's a story that God tells about real people who have real relationships with Him and real things that He did in life. And so let's read this. It says this in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. You know, you just think about that, Adam and Eve. You know, they've just gone through this terrible thing where they've rebelled against God. They've sinned. It's caused the fall of the human race. And um, it's caused the fall of creation. And this once perfect environment is now riddled with sin. And that includes them. And it's going to include their kids. They they are going to get a firsthand look at the consequences of the choices that they made when they chose to rebel against God. And that is that their, their kids, Cain and Abel, are going to be born not perfect, but they're going to be born fallen with a sinful heart. One of the things I think is interesting about this passage, though, is uh, remember that God goes through in the curse in Genesis chapter 3, and he starts by saying, hey, what have you done? And so he talks to Adam first because he's responsible, and Adam blames Eve. And then he talks to Eve, and she blames the snake. And then God curses the snake. But before he even addresses Adam and Eve, you see God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy, and he promises a Savior in Genesis 3.15 before he gets to the consequences of their sin. He tells them, I'm going to send a Messiah. And when you think about Eve, she's giving birth. She's thinking about what God says. And she's thinking, okay, I've gotten a child with the help of the Lord. And she's thinking, this is that promise to redeem mankind. And so she is so thankful that she's having this child Cain. And just think about how fun it is to, to give birth and to have a baby. Like we have stuff like that going on in this, in this church. We have people having kids and there's grandkids being born to families here. And that is just so exciting. Um, I, you know, if I was to think about the most enjoyable times in my life, uh, the things I would put on the, my list are the birth of my kids. Man, it was just so exciting and so fun. And I just loved having these kids and spending time with them. And every once in a while, Michelle would go away to a women's retreat or she'd go somewhere for a week with her friends. And those were my favorite times to hang out with my kids. You know, it's like I got to take care of them. And, and, uh, and I, I, would, I, I was diligent about training them. And so I used to say to Jessica, you know, Jessica, I want you to go and just think about what mom dressed you in. And uh, you help Julianne get dressed. You and Julianne get dressed and only put on stuff moms put you in. 
And so, um, so they, they got dressed, they would go to church, and, and, I, and I took a picture of it, sent it to Michelle, and, and she's like, yeah, you put uh, Jessica in Julianne's dress, and Julianne in Jessica's dress. So, you know, one of the kids is smaller and has this big dress, the other one's like this little small dress. But, I, but I'll just tell you, I loved hanging out and taking care of my kids. And for Adam and Eve, this beautiful baby comes into their life. They're so excited. I'm sure that they just were just loving those kids, having no idea of the pain and the sorrow and the devastation that was going to happen in their life. But we see in this just God's goodness. And uh, the other thing we see is there's no instructions in Genesis about worship, about sacrifice, about offerings. But we see that Cain and Abel are worshiping and making sacrifices and offerings to God. Let's read this. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt over what was wrong with these offerings, and people say all kinds of things, um, you know, that, that offerings and sacrifices, that one of the consequences of sin is death, and one of the things that you see in the Old Testament is that they killed animals. They would take animals, they would kill them, they would pour out their blood, and that was the picture of the fact that sin brings death. And so they would sacrifice animals. And so there are some people who would say, well, the thing that was wrong here is that Abel was sacrificing animals and Cain was sacrificing or offering um, fruit. But one of the other things that you see as you read through the Old Testament is that they also brought offerings of grain and offerings of fruit. I don't think that the problem here had anything to do with the type of offering I, had, I think it had to do with what was behind the offering. And the things that would kind of point us to that, first of all, we're blessed because we can read the New Testament, what it says about what happened here. But if we just look at this, it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's one of the things as you read the Bible, you think about what is included and what is left out. And it just says he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't, in a parallel way, say, and Abel brought an offering of animals. Like that would be a parallel statement. There's an emphasis made in Abel's offering that is not made in Cain's offering. It says Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. So that's first, the, the, the most important, the first one that you get. It's not like Abel waited till he had 10 sheep and then gave God one of them. When he only had one, he gave God everything he had. He brought the first born, the most important. It goes on, and it says, and of their fat portions. <laughs> I don't know if you're like me, but when I was a kid, I would cut all the fat off my steak. Like, I did not want to eat the fat. And so often when you read the Old Testament about how they brought the fat, um, like as I read that, I just thought, well, of course, who wants fat? You know, just give us the meat. But actually, the fat portions in their culture, and yeah, people, some people say it tastes the best, but that was an expression of that this is the best part. And one of the things that we see here is that in this offering, um, God has Abel's heart. Cain is doing the same external things, but God doesn't have Cain's heart. And that's why it is so important for us as we think about ourselves, as we think about our life, to recognize that life is not just about external religion. Life is about what's in your heart. When we're evaluating, I think this is a huge mistake that parents can make, is they could say, oh man, my kids love church. Like I remember my kids growing up, all my kids love church. And I remember this period of life of one of my kids that loved church the most was also one of the kids that I was the most confident did not know the Lord. And he loved church. It was fun to go there. And, and so you know it's one of my two boys. <laughs> but he loved going to church. And he participated. And he was involved in everything. You know why? Because it was fun. 
And he enjoyed the social elements. There are so many good reasons to go to church, so many things that would be attractive. And actually in churches, many of them, that's their goal. In fact, there are churches that will do surveys of everybody to say, what are the things that stop you from going to church? And then they try to get rid of those. What are the things that you really want in church? And then they try to produce those. And often churches that are man-centered and their goal is just how do we get as many people in here and not offend anybody are churches that are producing canes. And if, and if you have a family and in your family you're thinking about the religious externals of what your kids are doing, you can get a shock and a rude awakening one day. You know, they say that uh, 90% of kids or 80% of kids that are in church, when they graduate and go off to college, they hear worldly things and they leave their faith. And they say that, that uh, often the church doesn't hold on to its youth. And you want to know why? It's because churches are appealing to the fun and to flesh and to religious externals. And when a kid goes away to college and loses his faith, he didn't actually lose his faith. He never had faith. And if we entertain and we we pursue those kinds of things, what ends up happening is when kids are young and parents have control of their kids, my kids went to church. It didn't matter what they wanted to do or what they didn't want to do. I was their parent. You live in my house, you go to church. And from the time they were young, I told them, I can't make you be a Christian. Uh, Your relationship is between you and the Lord, but what I can do is I'm going to bring you to church where you're going to sit and you're going to hear God's Word, and I'm going to pray that God's Word is powerful in your life and that it brings you to salvation. I'm going to pray that when you go to church and you're around people who know the Lord and love the Lord, that that will be an influence in your life, but your walk with the Lord is between you and God. And often we uh, are shocked or surprised and we think that people leave their faith because we measure faith by the wrong things. And when you look at Cain and Abel, they were both doing the same thing. They were both making an offering. But Abel's offering God had uh, had regard for. Cain's offering he had no regard for. And why? Because worship is something That comes from the heart. You know, the New Testament tells us that Abel was a righteous man. In fact, Jesus said that. He says, on that day, verse Matthew 23, 35, he says, on that day you'll come and all the righteous blood shed on earth. It says, from the blood of righteous Abel. Um, Jesus labels Abel as a righteous man. You know, Abel was a man of faith. And Hebrews tells us, why God accepted his offering and not Cain's. This is what it says in Hebrews 11.4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You know, um, have you ever heard anybody say the Old Testament was not written for you? In fact, there was a whole book published to say the Old Testament was not written for you. It was for the Jews. It's not for you. You shouldn't read it. It's a book called Irresistible, uh, written by Andy Stanley. And he says, don't read the Old Testament because it's not for you. And that's one of the things we do as Christians, right? When we hear things like that, what do we do? We read the Bible. It wasn't written for you. No. Um, Hebrews, the New Testament, tells us that Abel's life speaks. We're supposed to read and think about and learn from the things that God has communicated. And no, we're not under the Old Testament law, but God's Word is powerful from the beginning to the end. Um, On the other hand, so Cable is a righteous man and a man of faith. Cain, on the other hand, is an evil man. In the grip of Satan, though he was religious. You know, if you think, ever think about uh, Jesus' approach to the Pharisees, isn't that the same thing he says to them? Um, you know, Jesus identifies that false religion. And you know, the Jewish nation, they are God's chosen people. But the Jewish nation has rejected God just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. 
and they're God's chosen people, and God has a history for them. He has a purpose for them in the future. But, you know, you look at all the stuff happening in the Middle East, and you ask yourself, why? Well, it's all the things that God promised Israel. If you're faithful to me, I'll protect you. If you're disobedient to me, I will discipline you and punish you. You know, the problems in the Middle East will never be solved until Israel comes back to faith in Christ. So they're God's chosen people, but they're certainly not righteous. In fact, a couple of the Jewish leaders just recently proposed um, something that if Christians share the gospel in Israel, if they proselytize adults, they should go to prison for a year, and if they proselytize anybody under 18, they should go to prison for two years. Like, that's not going to pass in Israel. Um, but that actually was just proposed by some of their leaders. And I think, okay, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And God loves them. God has a future for them. And he will bring them to salvation. But right now, they're under God's discipline because he doesn't have their heart. Um, so Cain is going through the motions. We think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you're of your father, the devil. He says, everything you do is to be noticed by other people. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of uncleanness. You tithe the mint and the dill, but you neglect the weightier portions of the law of justice and mercy. That's what he said about the Pharisees. And I would just say this, it is a huge mistake when we focus on externals instead of focusing on the heart. Think about this. 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Uh, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You ever know anybody who in church they call themselves a Christian but one of the most characteristic things about their life is they hate everybody who they perceive has wronged them. Um, that's not a Christian. People who um, their lives are dominated and controlled by sinfulness. That's not a Christian. No, we're not saved by our works. But what is in your heart comes out. Works are evidence of salvation. They are not a cause of salvation. And often we... Uh, attach salvation or not salvation to religious behavior, or maybe if somebody said, we can remember that they said a prayer. You know, my kids were, were little. I could have got any of them to pray the prayer of salvation anytime I wanted, because my kids loved me. They would have done whatever it took to please me. And so I had to work really hard to teach them and encourage them to have a relationship with God without ever becoming the motivation behind what they do. Like, I never said, hey, will you please pray this prayer, ever. I just prayed about who they were and tried to educate them and help them think about themselves rightly before God. It is a huge mistake when we focus on external actions instead of the heart. You ever think about, um, uh, we see often in parenting and in the church and in various things, we try to motivate people by external things. These are two books. One's called uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, and the other one is called Age of Opportunity by Paul David Tripp. They're brothers. The first is a book about kids. The second is a book about teenagers. And you know what I think about these when I was a youth pastor? Um, I always made all the youth leaders read both of these books, and I just told them, hey, you're working with students. You need to understand what your purpose is and what God wants you to do. These actually are books about discipleship. And they just take discipleship, they take thinking about what it means to be a believer, and they just say, okay, what does it mean to be a believer and how do you pass this on to your kids? Uh, what does it mean to be a believer and how do you work that out as you parent teenagers? But these books actually are just about being a Christian and how do you encourage and pass that on best books on discipleship. And I would encourage you, if you want to disciple, if you want to just work on growing as a believer, you should read this. Um, even if you don't have kids, you can get past like the illustrations of how it's worked out. But one of the things that both of these books emphasize is you can never pass on something to someone else that you don't have. And so that's the emphasis, emphasis is you got to have it before you can pass it on. Think about uh, how we parent often. It's external focused. Uh, we bribe our kids. 
hey, if you do this, I will give you this. Um, if, or the opposite of punishment, if you do these bad things, I will ground you. I'm going to withhold something that you want. What about emotional manipulation? Uh, trying to get kids, um, uh, oh, we try to manipulate them. Oh, I'm so sad. If, if you do that, it'll just break my heart and it'll make me sad. And, and all of these focuses are human focuses. I remember this one parent, uh, they told their daughter she was running around hiding in bushes. And uh, this is when Michelle and I were raising our kids. So our kids are all running around. And we told our kids, come here. And, and this other kid runs over into the bushes. And the mom's calling their kid, come out of the bushes. Come out of the bushes. And the kid's just totally ignoring the parent. And then the parent says, there are snakes in those bushes. And all of a sudden, the kid's terrified of snakes and runs out of the bushes. Um, it resulted in the behavior that she wanted. But that's not training. That's not the goal of parenting is to just modify behavior. Sometimes we train people about the fear of man. Uh, if you behave this way, you won't have any friends. If you do these things, I will be so proud of you. And so what we do is we emphasize and we encourage man-centered behavior. I really want people to like me. I really want to be appreciated. And we use that to control behavior. Instead of thinking about, what does God say about how a person should think about these things? And there's, you guys all know, I've said many times, I spank my kids. And I think if you're a parent and you love your kids, you'll spank them. That's what the Bible says. But the issue is that those are all tools that we use to help sometimes. But you want to know something? We are never motivated purely by behavior. It's why do you do what you do? What motivates you to do what you do? And that motivation needs to be the worship of God. And that's what we see with Cain and Abel. God was pleased with Abel's heart. He was not pleased with Cain's heart. The second thing that we're going to see in this passage is that the source of sin is in the heart. Look what it says here. Um, the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God just says to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? You ever know people that get angry because of their own sinfulness? Now, there's a lot of prideful people, and if you don't cater to their pride, they get angry. There's a lot of jealous people. Um, when they see something good happen to another person, they're very angry. They're very jealous. They, they can actually hate somebody when they see good things happening for them. You know, often you'll have conflicts between people, and one person's really upset, and they're really hurt. And then we'll just look at that whole situation. We'll say, well, there's two sides to every story. Somebody must have done something. I mean, look how hurt they are. When often the very thing that hurts people is their own sin. Um, Cain's furious. Cain's angry. I heard one person talk about this story of Cain and Abel, and they just, they do what so many people do with the Bible. They ignore what it says and just make their own stuff up, and they just read a story and change it. And this one person says, well, Abel should not have flaunted his offering in front of Cain. <laughs> That's not what went wrong here. In fact, the Bible tells us why Cain killed Abel. Um, Bible says that he killed Abel, Cain killed Abel, because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil. First John tells us that's why Cain killed Abel, because he was righteous. And often people are hated and people hate others because of their own sin. So that's one of the things that we see here is that he's offended and he's hurt by his own sin, which comes out of his heart. And God just says, Cain, all you have to do is the right thing. And uh, Cain, unfortunately, chose not to do that. Look at verse 8. Cain's sinful heart, his internal anger, turned into external behavior. You know, that's what the Bible says. Jesus talking about the heart and actions. Um, the Pharisees crit criticized the disciples because they ate food with unwashed hands. You know what Jesus said? 
It's not those religious behaviors that defile or make you not defiled. It's the sinfulness in your heart that comes out in your actions that defiles a person. You know, Jesus said that you can always tell what's in a person's heart by what's on their mouth, what kinds of things they say. And, and that's one of the things we need to recognize about ourselves. Have you ever been in a situation where you're hanging out with some people and you say things and then later you think, man, I really wish I wouldn't have said that. That wasn't that nice. That was kind of a mean-spirited thing to say or that was unwise. That ever happened to you where you say something and you just think, man, that was not the best thing to have done? You know, often we make excuses for ourselves. And sometimes our response is, I need to remember not to say that again. Have you ever, you ever thought that way when you say something? Use more self-discipline and don't say that. You know, the problem is that different situations and different thoughts are going to bring up different things. And maybe you won't say that again, but you'll say something else similar. What you need to do is back up and say, if I said that, that reflects a sinful attitude in my heart. So if I said the wrong thing, it's because I'm thinking the wrong thing. How can I correct the way that I think? And if you shared a confidence of somebody that you shouldn't have shared, for you to take a step back and go, okay, so I'm not loving people. I need to figure out how to love people. If you said something unkind to somebody or something prideful, often our words are an expression of pride, we should think to ourselves, okay, what's the, the prideful thought that drove that word, those, those words. Because your words and your actions always tell you what's in your heart. And often people redefine those things. And they'll, they'll just say, oh, um, you know, I, I just said that, but it's because you made me mad or you did this to me. And, and we write off and excuse our behavior. We, we look at the sinful acts in our life and we just go, oh, that's not really me. That's not really a reflection of me. Instead of saying, no, that, what I'm doing tells me something about my heart. And the, the, the bummer is that if we as adults and parents and mature Christians, if we can't think rightly about ourselves, you know what, often we have so much trouble helping our kids figure out how to work on their bad behavior, and it's because we haven't figured out how to address and think about our own bad behavior. Because until you can deal with your heart, you won't be able to parent your kids. You'll just manage their behavior, and you'll be raising a Cain, instead of raising Abel. Now, the other thing is, uh, don't, don't feel guilty if you have problems in your family, because God was the perfect parent. He was the perfect one appealing, and Cain still didn't listen. So, we're only responsible for us. We're not responsible for the choices that other people make. Third thing that we're going to see here is that, um, is that unchecked sin has devastating consequences. Man, could you imagine how terrible that is? I cannot imagine what it would be like for one of my kids to kill the other. Um, that would be the ultimate tragedy. It would be painful to lose a child, but to lose a child to murder? And, and often I think we think about these things and, and, and we put them much farther from us than they really are. You know, there's a lot of people who kill their family members in fact, whenever there's a murder, one of the first things that the police do is go look at who are the family members, who's closest. You know, those kinds of things happen all the time. <laughs> I remember this conversation I used to have with John and Jackson when John was about 10 years old. He had a temper problem, and uh, he would hit his sisters, and he would throw things at them. And, and I remember one time, Jessica and Julianne, they called. They, they just couldn't get control of John, and he was just like this big, crazy kid in our house. And, um, and, and we made a rule, and I just said, John, you are never allowed to stay home with your family. Every time we go anywhere, you have to come with me um, because you can't be trusted to be alone. But you want to know what one of the conversations I used to have with him all the time as a little kid is I used to say, John, you know how you're feeling right now and these things that you're doing to your siblings? Do you know where these things lead? That's why people kill their neighbors. You know, prisons are full of people who behave exactly like you're doing. And you want to know what? Most people look at that kind of stuff and go, oh, they're just kids. They'll grow out of it. No, kids don't grow out of things. They, they kind of change. And, and I used to tell John, look, I'm going to love you, but you keep going down this path, and I'm going to be visiting you in prison. 
And I wasn't saying that because um, I was trying to scare him or manipulate him. I was just telling him that is where these things lead. And when you look around and you see people in prison, it's because they think like you think and they behave like you're behaving. And that's why our prisons are full. And so you need to get off this path. But then we talked about what it meant to get off that path and that it was a heart issue and that he needed to think about people the way God tells him to. So we see these devastating consequences because Cain is going to kill his brother. It says in verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. So this is premeditated murder. He convinces his brother to walk out into a field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and he killed him. And so instead of repenting when he's confronted by God, he hardens his heart, he does not repent, and he continues down that same path, and his heart attitude turns into an action of murder. You know, that, uh, 1 John uh, tells us this. It says, it says um, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Think about that in Genesis. Cain's out there making offerings. Cain was of Satan, and he was doing religious behavior. Tons of religious people, tons of churches are full of people who are of Satan. And they call themselves Christians, but they live a sinful, wicked life. And that was Cain. And it says, don't be like Cain. We're supposed to read the story of Cain. We're supposed to think about what went wrong and then make a personal commitment not to be that way. And he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. God tells us what was in Cain's heart. And you know what? It wasn't that Abel was flaunting his offerings. It was that Cain was evil and Abel was righteous and Cain wanted to kill him. And that unchecked sin is devastating. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You know, sin can't be hidden. It's one of the things that you need to know is that sin can't be hidden. Uh, Cain kills his brother and he's out in a field. He thinks he's alone. You know, the, the Bible says in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You know, in church leadership, we should have accountability. Like, we should have structures and processes to protect leaders. But you know, the thing I think about is, like, I cannot imagine, like, I, I hear about pastors and leaders, and in a sense, I need to remind myself that it could happen to me. I think about people that mishandle funds and that do things like that, you know, that, that, that commit acts of sexual immorality. They're in ministry and they have affairs and they do things like that. And that always is the result of somebody who forgets that God sees everything. And so they steal a little and nobody knows and they just keep doing that and they think no one knows. Well, eventually God brings those things to light. That they, they harbor lustful thoughts in their heart um, toward other people. They're, they're blowing it on the internet. They're opening doors to sin in their life. And then where does that end up? And it's because they forget that God sees everything. For a person who actually lives their life, and, and, and so if you're man-centered, then you're thinking to yourself, can I get away with this? If you're God-centered... Then you're thinking, how do I honor and please God in everything, even the little things that no one sees? Uh, I used to tell my kids, one, one of my kids, I wouldn't let them go hang out with their friends. And I just told them, I said, the, the reason you can't, hey, this isn't fair. How come she gets to hang out with her friends and I don't get to hang out with mine? And what I told her was, your sister demonstrates in her life that she has a desire to please God, and that is a protection when she goes somewhere and I don't know what's happening and I don't know what's around, but all these things I see working her way, their way out in her life is that she cares about what God thinks. She wants to please God in her life. She's safe to go into that situation. You demonstrate in your life 
that you're not driven and motivated by a desire to please God, which means that when you go into those places, you are an accident waiting to happen. And one of my jobs as a parent is to keep you from destroying your life until you come to the place that you're faithful. And I I told him, I realize there's going to be a day when you're 18 and you're an adult and I can't control these things anymore, but as long as you're in my house... I'm going to try to protect you and keep you in one piece. That's one of the things I thought about my life as a kid growing up was so full of sin. I did so many damaging, terrible things to myself and to other people as a teenager before I came to know the Lord. And after I got saved, I thought to myself, man, I wish my parents would have shut the door on some of these things I did that just injured my soul. And that's part of the job of a parent is to be able to think about what do you see and and do you see spiritual maturity in your kid's life? What's driving them? What's motivating them? But the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's keeping watch on the evil and the good. And then God pronounces judgment, the devastating consequences. Um, Cain's brother's dead. You've got to live with the fact that he killed his brother. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You know, there's always consequences to sin. And um, those consequences don't always come immediately, but there are always consequences to sin. You know, isn't that what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said to them, Um, God's holding out on you. Uh, There's fun. There's really good things out there. You'll be wise like God, knowing good and evil. God's telling you these things because he's a bad, mean God holding out. When the truth is, everything God says is for our best interests and our well-being. When when God talks about not being sexually immoral, um, not uh, uh, pursuing romantic relationships with unbelievers, not lying about things, like all the things that God says are for our well-being. You know, James 1.17, uh, it's a passage that talks about temptation and sin and the destruction of sin. And the, the verse, verse 17, so 13 through 16, is talking about temptation and sin But verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. And so we think about this. God is the smartest person in the universe. He knows what's best. God is the king of the universe. He has the right to tell us what to do. God is good. And so everything he tells us is for our best interests. You ever met anybody who's like, oh, no, the, the things in the Bible, that's from some time past, somewhere else, some other age. That's not for us today. Not true. And in this entire story, um, who's gracious, who's merciful, who's reaching out, who's loving? It's God. When, when, when Cain offers a bad offering, God's there to say, Cain, dude, what are you doing? Do the right thing. When Cain responds wrongly and he's angry, it's like, don't be angry, just do what's right, Cain. And then when Cain sins, God's the one who shows up and says, hey, Cain, what, where's, where's your brother? What happened to your brother? You know, that's what God did with Adam and Eve, right? When they were hiding, God said, hey, where are you and why are you hiding? God is inviting repentance. And it's sad because as gracious and merciful as God is that we will see, Cain doesn't repent. Then Cain said to the Lord, um, so, he, so God pronounces this judgment. And then Cain says in verse 13, he says this. <clears throat> he says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What do you notice about Cain's response to this? You know, God's inviting Cain, come, be reconciled, be right with me. And Cain's like, no, I'm going to wander on the earth, and I'm going to be away from you. God has given him an invitation to be close, but Cain's saying, no, I'm going to wander from you. 
And then he goes on to say, and whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, What did he just do to his brother? He just killed his brother. Why? Brother was righteous. You know, you think about um, what a blessing it is to think about what the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, Jesus actually says that that's the whole law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament about laws of how you treat people, just do to other people what you would want done to you. Just genuinely love other people more than yourself. Philippians 2, consider others more important than yourself. And Cain's like, yeah, I killed him, but I don't want to be killed. You know, Cain is not repentant. He is not sorry. He doesn't like the consequences of what's happening in his life. And no repentance. Man, what a tragedy. If you read Psalm 51, it's the story, and this is in our life group questions, but it's a story of King David when he murders Uriah, when he has an affair with Bathsheba. And when he sins, look at the difference between the way David responds to his sin and the way that Cain responds to his sin. David is how every Christian should respond to your, their sin. He takes, he takes responsibility for it. He says, God, your judgment is righteous and just. I deserve any punishment I get. Cain is saying, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This is too terrible. I can't bear this. It's a tragedy. And, um, you know, look how amazingly gracious God is. This hard-hearted person that refuses to acknowledge God, that refuses to repent. And, and look how God responds. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anybody who, who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Enoch. You know, um, tragedy that Cain doesn't um, respond to God's open arms, but God is still merciful and gracious. You know that's true for everybody who shakes their fist in God's face? That's God. God is pouring out His mercy and His grace and His kindness. Romans chapter 2 says, don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. And God is gracious and merciful, and He's giving people time. Have you ever seen rich, powerful people who say that they hate God? And they still live. And some of them are still rich. And that's God's mercy. That's not supposed to make people take God for granted. That is supposed to make people repent and come to God. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. People say things. um, I would say it's very unthoughtful sometimes. The things that people will appeal to to say this can't be a real story. The creation of account can't be real. People will say things like, where did Cain's wife come from? See, there must have been a bunch of people that evolved, and uh, his wife came from somewhere. You know where Cain's wife came from? (laughs) Cain's wife was his sister. There's Adam and Eve, and they had a bunch of kids, and they lived a really long time, and the whole world was made up of Adam and Eve's kids. And so Cain married his sister. Like, this is not complicated, not difficult to understand. But people put so many things, they they do so much with the things in here, and I won't even address all of those. But, you know, this is the important thing for us to think about as we think about repentance. Uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember your sins no more. Psalm 103, 10 talks about how God has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And you know, that's the same picture we have, by the way, of God in the Old Testament. This is what God says in the Old Testament. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? 
You want to know what's really sad when you think about what happened here? Is when you read the rest of the story of Genesis, it lists a bunch of Cain's kids. And uh, by the way, parables don't list kids. Um, this is a genealogy. This is a historical account. But people who read this, they read past all those things. But it lists all these kids. And then it comes to Lamech. And, and listen to Lamech. Look what happens to the descendants of Cain. It says, Lamech, verse 23 of chapter 4, said to his wives, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. Um, you want to know what God's communicating to us in Genesis chapter 4? Is that Cain passed on uh, this attitude of hatred toward God, and it actually got worse and worse and worse. And he ends up with a kid who kills somebody for insulting them. So that's actually, to some degree, um, you know, he, he kills somebody. And then um, God said, I'll avenge anybody who, who kills Cain. But Lamech is so prideful and arrogant, he's saying, I will be avenged 11 times, you know, 77 times. So 10 times the vengeance that a person would get for killing Cain, they're going to get from me. 10 times plus one. But he's so prideful and arrogant. He's like, this is how powerful I am. I can kill anybody. Nobody dares to attack me. Like you just see the sinful attitude in Cain growing and growing and growing. And then the chapter ends, and it just says at that, it says in verse 26, that God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And we're going to read on and, uh, as we go through Genesis, and we're going to see the fruit of that sinfulness in society. And uh, we'll learn about the word Hamas, uh, what that actually means. We'll read the passage in Genesis where it occurs. But for us, as we think about the story, God intends for us to learn from it. And that is that we need to deal with the sin in our heart. We should repent. It is never too late to repent. God is so gracious and He's so merciful. And we need to think not about externals, but about our heart. And that doesn't mean we don't look at actions because we know actions come from the heart. It doesn't mean we don't look at words because words come from the heart. But our goal is not to whitewash actions, to whitewash words, to control those things. Our goal is always, do I have a heart that loves the Lord? And how do I encourage people around me to have a heart that loves the Lord? Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, that you intend for us to be people that evaluate our heart. Lord, we need to take your commandments seriously. We need to obey you. We know that obedience is a reflection of love for you. And yet, Lord, we know that ultimately a lack of obedience is not actions. The lack of obedience is a lack, is a lack of a heart for you. Help us to be people that love you with all of our heart in your name. Amen.